Chapter 11.2 of Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Hadley. Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon by Austin Henry Layard. Chapter 11.2 As we drew near to the foot of the hills, we found a large encampment, formed partly by Jabours, belonging to Sheikh Abdulaziz, and partly by the Sinjar tribe, called Mendka, under a chief known as the Effendi, who enjoys considerable influence in this district. I dismounted a short distance from the encampment to avoid a breach of good manners, as to refuse to eat bread, or to spend the night after alighting near a tent, would be thought a grave slight upon its owner. The caravan continued its journey toward the village. I was soon surrounded by the principal people of the camp. Amongst them was one of my old workmen, Cuther, who now cultivated a small plot of ground in the desert. It was with difficulty that I resisted the entreaties of the Effendi to partake of his hospitality, and we did not reach the Baled until after the sun had gone down, the caravan having been ten hours in unceasing march. I had scarcely entered my tent when the governor of the district, who resides in a small modern castle built on the hillside, came to see me. He was a Turkish officer, belonging to the household of Kamel Pasha, and complained bitterly of his solitude, of difficulties of collecting the taxes, and of dealing with the Bedouins who haunted the plains. He was almost shut up within the walls of his wretched fort, in company with the garrison of a score of half-starved Albanians. This state of things was chiefly owing to the misconduct of his predecessor, who, when the inhabitants of the Sinjar were quiet and obedient, had treacherously seized two of their principal chiefs, Mahmud and Murad, and had carried them in chains to Mosul, where they had been thrown into prison. A deputation having been sent to obtain their release, I had been able to intercede with Kamel Pasha on their behalf, and now bore to their followers the welcome news of their speedy return to their homes. Early on the following morning I returned the visit of the governor, and from the tower of the small castle took the bearings of the principal objects in the plain. The three remarkable peaks rising on the low range of Kebretia, behind Abu Kamira, were still visible in the extreme distance, and enabled me to fix with some accuracy the position of many ruins. About four or five miles distant from the Baled is another large group of mounds, resembling that of Abu Kamira, called by the Bedouins simply the Hosh the courtyard or enclosure. The ruins of the ancient town, known to the Arabs as El Baled or the city, are divided into two distinct parts by a range of rocky hills, which, however, are cleft in the center by the bed of a torrent, forming a narrow ravine between them. The ruins are undoubtedly those of the town of Sinjar, the capital of an Arab principality in the time of the Caliphs. Its princes frequently asserted their independence, coined money, and ruled from the Kabur and Euphrates 
to the neighborhood of Mosul. The province was included within the dominions of the celebrated Saleh-ed-Din, the Saladin of the Crusades, and was more than once visited by him. The ruins of Sinjar are also believed to represent the Singara of the Romans. On coins struck under the Emperor Gordian, and bearing his effigy with that of the Empress Tranquilina, this city is represented by a female wearing a mural crown, surmounted by a centaur, seated on a hill with the river at her feet? According to the Arab geographers, the Sinjar was celebrated for its palms. This tree is no longer found there, nor does it bear fruit, I believe, anywhere to the north of Tikrit in Mesopotamia. Wishing to visit the villages of the Shomal, or northern side of the mountain, and at the same time to put an end, if possible, to the bloodshed between their inhabitants, and to induce them to submit to the governor, I quitted the Baled in the afternoon, accompanied by Kowal Yusuf and his Yazidi companions, Mr. and Mrs. R., the doctor, and Mr. Cooper. We followed a precipitous pathway along the hillside to Mirkan, the village destroyed by Tayar Pasha on my first visit to the Sinjar. Mirkan was in open rebellion, and had refused both to pay taxes and to receive the officer of the Pasha of Mosul. I was at first somewhat doubtful of our reception. Esau, the chief, came out, however, to meet me, and led us to his house. We were soon surrounded by the principal men of the village. They were also at war with the tribes of the Shomal. Sounded by Kawal Yusuf, I endeavored to make them feel that peace and union amongst themselves was essential to their welfare, and after a lengthened discussion, the chief consented to accompany me to the neighboring village of Bukra, with whose inhabitants his people had been for some time at war. Mirkan had been partly rebuilt since its destruction three years before, but the ruins and charred timbers of houses still occupied much of its former site. There are two pathways from Mirkan to the Shumal, one winding through narrow valleys, the other crossing the shoulder of the mountain. I chose the latter, as it enabled me to obtain an extensive view of the surrounding country, and to take bearings of many points of interest. Near the crest of the hill we passed a white conical building, shaded by a grove of trees. It was the tomb of the father of Murad, one of Yusuf's companions, a kawal of note, who had died near the spot of the plague some years before. The walls were hung with the horns of sheep slain in sacrifice by occasional pilgrims. I had little anticipated the beauty and extent of the view which opened round us on the top of the pass. The Sinjar Hill is a solitary ridge rising abruptly in the midst of the desert. From its summit, therefore, the eye ranges on one side over the vast level wilderness stretching to the Euphrates, and on the other over the plain bounded by the Tigris and the lofty mountains of Kurdistan. Nisibin and Mardin were both visible in the distance. I could distinguish the hills of Badri and Sheikh Adi and many well-known peaks of the Kurdish Alps. Behind the lower ranges, each distinctly marked by its sharp, serrated outline, were the snowy-covered heights of Tiari and Botan, whilst to the south of the Sinjar 
artificial mounds appeared to abound. To the north I could distinguish but few such remains. We dismounted to gaze upon this truly magnificent scene lighted up by the setting sun. I have rarely seen any prospect more impressive than these boundless plains viewed from a considerable elevation. Besides the idea of vastness they convey, the light and shade of passing clouds flitting over the face of the land, and the shadows as they lengthen toward the close of day, produce constantly changing effects of singular variety and beauty. It was night before we reached Bukra, where we were welcomed with great hospitality. The best house in the village had been made ready for us, and was scrupulously neat and clean, as the houses of the Zidis usually are. The elders of Bukra came to me after we had dined, and seated themselves respectfully and decorously around the room. They were not averse to the reconciliation I proposed, received the hostile chief without hesitation, and promised to accompany me on the morrow to the adjoining village of Asufa, with which they were also at war. In the morning we visited several houses in the village. They were all neat and clean. The women received us without concealing their faces, which are, however, far from pleasing, their features being irregular and their complexions sallow. Those who are married dress entirely in white, with a white kerchief under their chins and another over their heads, held by the agal, or woolen cord, of the Bedouins. The girls wear white shirts and drawers, but over them colored zaboons, or long silk dresses, open at the front, and confined at the waist by a girdle ornamented with pieces of silver. They twist gay kerchiefs round their heads, and adorn themselves with coins and glass and amber beads, when their parents are able to procure them. But the Yazidis of the Sinjar are now very poor, and nearly all of the trinkets of the women have long since fallen into the hands of the Turkish soldiery, or have been sold to pay taxes and arbitrary fines. The men have a dark complexion, black and piercing eyes, and frequently a fierce and forbidding countenance. They are of small stature, but have well-proportioned limbs strongly knit together, and are muscular, active, and capable of bearing great fatigue. Their dress consists of a shirt, loose trousers, and cloak, all white, and a black turban, from beneath which their hair falls in ringlets. The Yazidis are, by one of their religious laws, forbidden to wear the common eastern shirt open in front, and this article of their dress is always closed up to the neck. This is a distinctive mark of the sect, by which its members may be recognized at a glance. The language of the people of Sinjar is Kurdish, and few speak Arabic. As the people of Osofa or Usifa were at war with their neighbors, and as this was one of the principal seats of rebellion and discontent, I was anxious to have an interview with its chief. The position of Osifa is very picturesque. It stands on the edge of a deep ravine. Behind it are lofty crags and narrow gorges, whose sides are filled with natural caverns. On overhanging rocks, towering of the village, were two ziaras, or holy places, of the Yazidis, distinguished from afar by their white-fluted spires. Pulo, the chief, 
met us at the head of the principal inhabitants, and led me to his house, where a large assembly was soon collected, to discuss the principal object of my visit. Chiefs of Merkan and Bukra were induced to make offers of peace, which were accepted, and after much discussion the terms of an amicable agreement were agreed to and ratified by general consent. Sheep were slain to celebrate the event. We passed the night at Aldina, in the house of Murad, one of the imprisoned chiefs, whose release I had obtained before leaving Mosul. I was able to announce the good tidings of his approaching return to his wife, to whom he had been lately married, and who had given birth to a child during his absence. Below Aldina stands a remarkable ziara, enclosed by a wall of cyclopean dimensions. In the plain beneath, in the midst of a grove of trees, is the tomb of Kowal Hussein, the father of Kowal Yusuf, who died in the Sinjar during one of his periodical visitations. He was a priest of sanctity and influence, and his grave is still visited as a place of pilgrimage. Sacrifices of sheep are made there, but they are merely in remembrance of the deceased, and have no particular religious meaning attached to them. The flesh is distributed amongst the poor, and a sum of money is frequently added. Approving the ceremony as one tending to promote charity and kindly feeling, I gave a sheep to be sacrificed at the tomb of the Kawal, and one of my fellow travellers added second, the carcasses being afterwards divided among the needy. A messenger brought me word during the night that Sutum had returned from his tribe, and was waiting with a party of horsemen to escort us to his tents. I determined, therefore, to cross at once to the Baled by a direct though difficult pass. We visited Nogre and Amira before entering the gorge leading to the pass. Only two other villages of any importance, Simoka and Jaffrey, were left unseen. The ascent of the mountain was extremely precipitous, and we were nearly two hours in reaching the summit. We then found ourselves on a broad green platform, thickly wooded with dwarf oak. I was surprised to see snow still lying in the sheltered nooks. On both sides of us stretched the great Mesopotamian plains. To the south, glittering in the sun, was a small salt lake, about fifteen miles distant from the Sinjar, called by the Arabs Munaif. From it the Bedouins, when in their northern pastures, obtained their supplies of salt. We descended to the Baled through a narrow valley, thick with oak and various shrubs, and were nearly five hours in crossing the mountain. Sutum and his Bedouin companions were waiting for us, but were not anxious to start before the following morning. A Yazidi snake-charmer, with his son, a boy of seven or eight years old, came to my tents in the afternoon, and exhibited his tricks in the midst of a circle of astonished beholders. He first pulled from a bag a number of snakes knotted together, which the bystanders declared to be of the most venomous kind. The child took the reptiles fearlessly from his father, and placing them in his bosom, allowed them to twine themselves round his neck and arms. The Bedouins gazed in mute wonder at these proceedings, but when the sheikh, feigning rage against one of the snakes, which had drawn blood from his son, seized it, and biting off its head with his teeth, 
through the writhing body amongst them they could no longer restrain their horror and indignation they uttered loud curses on the infidel snake charmer and his kindred to the remotest generations Sutum did not regain his composure during the whole evening frequently relapsing into profound thought then suddenly breaking out in a fresh curse upon the sheikh who he declared had a very close and unholy connection with the evil one many days passed before he had completely got over the horror the poor yazidi's feats had caused him Sutum had changed his delul for a white mare of great beauty named atheba she was of the race of kohela of exquisite symmetry in temper docile as a lamb yet with an eye of fire and of a proud and noble carriage when excited in war or in the chase his saddle was the simple stuff pad generally used by the bedouins without stirrups a halter alone served to guide the gentle animal we followed a pathway over the broken ground at the foot of the sinjar crossing deep watercourses worn by the small streams which lose themselves in the desert the villages as on the opposite slope or shomal are high up on the hillside we encamped after a short ride upon a pleasant stream beneath the village of jadela we remained there a whole day in order to visit Sutum's tribe, which was now migrating toward the Sinjar. Early in the morning a vast crowd of moving objects could be faintly perceived on the horizon. These were the camels and sheep of the Boraj, followed by the usual crowd of men, women, children, and beasts of burden. We watched them as they scattered themselves over the plain and gradually settled in different pastures by midday the encampment had been formed and all the stragglers collected we could scarcely distinguish the black tents and their sight was only marked by curling wreaths of white smoke in the afternoon Sutum's father rishwan came to us accompanied by several sheikhs of the boraj he rode on a white delul celebrated for her beauty and swiftness his saddle and the neck of his animal were profusely adorned with woodland tassels of many colors, glass beads, and small shells, after the manner of the Arabs of Najed. The well-trained dromedary having knelt at the door of my tent, the old man alighted, and throwing his arms around my neck, kissed me on both shoulders. He was tall and of noble carriage. His beard was white with age, but his form was still erect, and his footsteps firm. Rishwan was one of the bravest warriors of the Shamar. He was a noble specimen of the true Bedouin, both in character and appearance. With the skill and daring of the Arab warrior, he united the hospitality, generosity, and good faith of a hero of Arab romance. The Yazidi chiefs of Karania, or Sekania, the village is known by both names, came to our encampment soon after Rishwan's arrival. As they had a feud with the Bedouins, I took advantage of their visit to effect a reconciliation, both parties swearing on my hospitality to abstain from plundering one another hereafter. 
Being anxious to reach the end of our journey, I declined Sutum's invitation to sleep in his tent, but sending the caravan to the place appointed for our night's encampment, I made a detour to visit his father, accompanied by Mr. and Mrs. R., the doctor, Mr. C., and Hormuz. Although the barrage were above six miles from the small rivulet of Jadela, they were obliged to send to it for water. As we rode towards their tents, we passed their camels and sheep slowly wandering towards the stream. In the throng we met Sahiman, the elder brother of Sutum. He was riding on a bay horse, whose fame had spread far and wide amongst the tribes, and whose exploits were a constant theme of praise and wonder with the Shamar. He was of the race of Obeyan Sharak, a breed now almost extinct, and perhaps more highly prized than any other of the desert. He had established his fame when but two years old. Ferran, with the principal warriors of the Corusa, had crossed the Euphrates to plunder the Aneza. They were met by a superior force and were completely defeated. The best mares of the tribe fell into the hands of the enemy, and the bay colt alone, although followed by the fleetest horses of the Aneza, distanced his pursuers. Such noble qualities, united with the purest blood, rendered him worthy to be looked upon as the public property of the Shamar, and no sum of money would induce his owner to part with him. Near the encampment of the Baraj was a group of mounds resembling in every respect those that I have already described. The Bedouins call them Abu Kema. Are these singular ruins those of towns or of temples? Their similarity of form, a center mound divided into a series of terraces, ascended by an inclined way or steps, and surrounded by equilateral walls, would lead to the conjecture that they were fire temples, or vast altars, destined for astral worship. It will be seen hereafter that the well-known ruin of the Beers Nimrud, on or near the site of ancient Babylon, is very nearly the same in shape. When I come to describe those remarkable remains, I will add some further observations upon their original form. The Bedouins who accompanied us galloped to and fro, engaging in mimic war with their long quivering spears, until we reached the encampment of the Baraj. Rishwan, Sutum, Mijwell, his younger brother, and the elders of the tribe were standing before the tent ready to receive us. All the old carpets and coverlets of the family, and ragged enough they were, had been spread out for their guests. As we seated ourselves, two sheep were slain before us, for the feast, a ceremony it would not have been considered sufficiently hospitable to perform previous to our arrival, as it might have been doubtful whether the animals had been slain wholly for us. The chief men of the encampment collected round us, crouching in a wide circle on the grass. We talked of Arab politics and Arab war, gazoos, or party for plundering, and Agneza mare stolen or carried off in battle by the Shamar. Huge wooden platters, heavy with the steaming messes of rice and boiled meat, were soon brought in, and placed on the ground before us. Immense lumps of fresh butter were then heaped upon them, and allowed to melt, 
the chief occasionally mixing and kneading the whole up together with his hands. When the dishes had cooled, the venerable Rishwan stood up in the center of the tent, and called in a loud voice upon each person by name, and Dennis turned to come to the feast. We fared first with a few of the principal sheikhs. The most influential men were next summoned, each, however, resisting the honor, and allowing himself to be dragged by Sutum and Mijuel to his place. The children, as is usual, were admitted last, and wound up the entertainment by a general scramble for the fragments and the bones. Neither Rishwan nor his sons would eat any of the repasts they had prepared, the laws of hospitality requiring that it should be left entirely to their guests. After we had eaten, I accompanied Mrs. R. to the harem, where we found the assembled, the wives and daughters of Rishwan, of his sons and of the elders of the tribe, who had met together to see the Frank lady. Amongst them were several of considerable beauty. The wife of Sahiman, the eldest of the three brothers, was most distinguished for her good looks. They were all dressed in the usual long blue shirt and striped or black abba, with a black headkerchief or kefia, confined by a band of spun camel's wool. Massive rings of silver adorned with gems and coral hung from their noses, and bracelets in the same metal, also set with precious stones, encircled their wrists and ankles. Their eyes are large, almond-shaped, expressive, and of extraordinary brilliancy and fire. They suffer their black and luxuriant hair to fall in clusters of curls. Their carriage in youth is erect and graceful. They are able to bear much fatigue, and show great courage and spirit in moments of difficulty and danger. But their beauty is only the companion of extreme youth. With few exceptions, soon after twenty, and the birth of one or two children, they rapidly change into the most hideous of old hags, the lightning-like brightness of the eye alone surviving the general wreck. When young, the daughters and wives of the chiefs are well cared for. They move with the tribe in the covered camel saddle, shaded by carpets from the rays of the sun. Daughters are looked upon in the desert as a source of strength and advantage, from the alliances they enable the father to make with powerful and influential chiefs, being frequently the means of healing feuds which have existed for many years. Before we left the encampment, Satum led before me as a present a handsome grey colt, which was, as usual, returned with a request to take care of it until it was required, the polite way to decline a gift of this nature. Satum, having saddled his Delul, was ready to accompany us on our journey. As he was to be for some time absent from his tents, he asked to take his wife with him, and I willingly consented. Rathea was the sister of Sutum el-Mik, the chief of the powerful tribe of the Abdi, one of the principal divisions of the Shamar. She was a lady of a very haughty and imperious temper, as poor Sutum had found to his cost, for she carried matters with so high a hand that he had been compelled almost immediately after his marriage to send back a young and beautiful wife to her father's tent. 
She rode on the dromedary behind her lord, a comfortable seat having been made for her with a rug and a coverlet. The true Sinjar Mountain ends about nine miles from Jadela, the high ridge suddenly subsiding into low broken hills. From all parts of the plain it is a very beautiful object. Its limestone rocks, wooded here and there with dwarf oak, are of a rich golden color, and the numberless ravines which furrow its side form ribs of deep purple shadow. The western part of the Sinjar is inhabited by the Yazidi tribe of Karania. We rode over the plain in a parallel line to the mountain, and about seven or eight miles from it. Towards nightfall we skirted a ridge of very low hills riding to our left, but night set in before we could see the tents. No sound except the mournful note of the small desert owl, which has often misled the weary wanderer, broke the deep silence, nor could we distinguish the distant fires, usually marking the site of an encampment. Satum, however, well knew where the Bedouins would halt, and about an hour after dark we heard the well-known voice of Dervish and others of my workmen, who, anxious at our delay, had come out to seek us. Our encampment was full of Yazidis, of the Karania tribe, who had ridden from the tents to see me, bringing presents of sheep, flour, and figs. They were at war, both with the Bedouins and the inhabitants of the northern side of the mountain. My large tent was soon crowded with guests. They squatted down on the ground in double ranks. For the last time I spoke on the advantage of peace and union amongst themselves, and I exacted from them a solemn promise that they would meet the assembled tribes at the next great festival in the valley of Sheikh Adi, referring their differences in future to the decision of Hussein Bey, Sheikh Nazar, and the Kewals, instead of appealing to arms. I also reconciled them with the Bedouins, Satum entering into an engagement for his tribe, and both parties agreeing to abstain from lifting each other's flocks when they should again meet in the pastures at the foot of the hills. The inhabitants of the Sinjar are too powerful and independent to pay kawi, or blackmail, to the Shamar, who indeed stand in much awe of their Yazidi enemies. The Yazidis returned to their encampment late at night, but about a hundred of their horsemen were again with me before the tents were struck in the morning. They promised to fulfill the engagements entered into on the previous evening, and accompanied me for some miles on our day's journey. Kawal Yusuf returned with them on his way back to Mosul. It was agreed that he should buy, at the annual auction, the Mokata, or revenues of the Sinjar, and save the inhabitants from the tyranny and exactions of the Turkish tax-gatherer. I wrote letters for him to the authorities of Mosul, recommending such an agreement, equally beneficial to the tranquillity of the mountain and of the treasury of the Pasha. After leaving Om al-Diban, we entered an undulating country crossed by deep ravines, worn by the winter torrents. Four hours' ride brought us to a scanty spring. Half an hour beyond, we passed a second, and in five and a half hours pitched the tents for the rest of the day 
near a small stream. All these springs are called Malaga, and rising in the gypsum or Mosul marble, have a brackish and disagreeable taste. The Bedouins declare that, although unpalatable, they are exceedingly wholesome, and that even their mares fatten on the waters of Jareba. Satum came to me before nightfall, somewhat downcast in look, as if a heavy weight were on his mind. At length, after various circumlocutions, he said that his wife would not sleep under the white tent which I had lent her. Such luxuries being, as she declared, only worthy of city ladies, and altogether unbecoming of the wife and daughter of a Bedouin. So determined is she, said Satum, in the matter, that Balah, she deserted my bed last night, and slept on the grass in the open air. And now she swears she will leave me and return on foot to her kindred, unless I save her from the indignity of sleeping under a white tent. It was inconvenient to humor the fancies of the Arab lady, but as she was inexorable, I gave her a black Arab tent used by the servants for a kitchen. Under the sheet of goat-hair canvas, open on all sides to the air, she said she could breathe freely and feel again that she was a Bedouin. We crossed, during the following evening, a beautiful plain covered with sweet-smelling flowers and aromatic herbs, and abounding in gazelles, hares, and bustards. We reached in about two hours the encampments, whose smoke we had seen during the preceding evening. They belonged to the Bedouins of the Hamoud branch of the Shamar, and had recently been plundering a government and slaughtering the soldiers guarding it. They are notorious for treachery and cruelty, and certainly the looks of those who gathered around us, many of them grotesquely attired in the plundered garments of the slaughtered Turkish soldiery, did not belie their reputation. They fingered every article of dress we had on to learn its texture and value. Leaving their encampments, we rode through vast herds of camels and flocks of sheep belonging to the tribe, and at length came in sight of the river. The Kabur flows through the richest pastures and meadows. Its banks were now covered in flowers of every hue, and its windings through the green plain were like the coils of a mighty serpent. I never beheld a more lovely scene. An uncontrollable emotion of joy seized all our party when they saw the end of their journey before them. The horsemen urged their horses to full speed. The jabours, dancing in a circle, raised their colored kerchiefs on their spears and shouted their war-cry. Hormuzd leading the chorus. The tiari sang their mountain songs and fired their muskets into the air. The tents of Mohammed Emin, the jabour sheikh, were pitched under the ruins of Arban, and on the right or northern bank of the river, which was not at this time fordable. As we drew near to them, after a ride of nearly two hours, the sheikh pointed in triumph to the sculptures, which were the principal objects of my visit. They stood a little above the water's edge, at the base of a mound of considerable size. We had passed several tells, and the double banks of ancient canals, showing that we were still among the remains of ancient civilization. 
At length we stopped opposite to the encampment of the Jabur Sheikh, but it was too late to cross the river, some time being required to make ready the rafts. We raised our tents, therefore, for the night on the southern bank. They were soon filled by a motley group of Boraj, Hamoud, Asaya, and Jabur Arabs. Mogami's, Sutum's uncle, came shortly after our arrival, bringing me as a present a well-trained hawk and some bustards, the fruits of his morning sport. The falcon was duly placed on his stand in the center of the spacious tent, and remained during the rest of my sojourn in the east, a member of my establishment. His name was Fawaz, and he was a native of the hills of Makul, near Tikrit, celebrated for their breed of hawks. He was of the species called Chark, and had been given by Sadun el-Mustafa, the chief of the great tribe of Obiad, to Ferhan, the sheikh of the Shamar, who had bestowed him in token of friendship on Mogamis. A sheikh of the Hamoud also brought us a wild ass colt, scarcely two months old, which had been caught whilst following its dam, and had been since fed upon camel's milk. Indeed, nearly all those who came to my tent had some offering, either sheep, milk, curds, or butter. Even the Arab boys had caught for us the elegant jerboa, which burrows in vast numbers on the banks of the river. Suitable presents were made in return. Dinner was cooked for all our guests, and we celebrated our first night on the Kabur by general festivities. End of chapter 11